Thank you for listening to this talk, produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. We meet on Ghana land, Agsa Ghana, Miena, Yatanga, Yuandi. Thank you so much for joining us ahead of Reconciliation Week. I'm going to take my cue from the idea of reconciliation to speak about the works in this room. My name's Lisa Slade and I'm the Assistant Director here at the Gallery. Hands up if you have not been to one of our lunchtime talks before. I'm sorry about this, I love to involve my audience, as many of you would know. Higher so I can actually count you, because this, this, is, this is cheap analysis. <laughs> cheap, cheap polling. What a shame they didn't do a little bit of this last week, hey? Very cheap polling, but it works every time. 13 team, public programs, 13 newcomers, that is excellent. This exhibition opened a couple of months ago now and it is due to close in a couple of weeks. The exhibition has been brought to us through the incredible generosity of the Nielsen Foundation and Lipman Karras, who are an Adelaide-based law firm who are incredible champions of citizenry. And they struck a chord with Ben Quilty's championing of citizenry with our responsibility as critical citizens at this time in the world. I did say to a journalist this morning when I was talking about this exhibition that this show feels a little bit different after the weekend as well. Isn't it interesting that art's a prism? Art's a lens through which we think about our experiences of the world, about who we are, politically, personally, socially, and culturally, of course. So my approach today is, as I said, going to be in advance of Reconciliation Week. Next Tuesday, you get to hear from our director, Rana Devonport, and she will be talking about the Ramsey Art Prize. Now, we are launching the Ramsey Art Prize on Friday evening. Just worth a little plug for the Ramsey, because it's phenomenal and only in its second year. It's a $100,000 prize for an artist under 40 working in any medium in this country. It is unprecedented and unequaled, unrivaled in its openness and its creativity. And that's all because of the foresight and generosity of James and Dana Ramsey. So that opens Friday night and next Tuesday, Rana will be talking about that prize. So, reconcile. The idea or the etymology of the word itself is about bringing things together, about looking back and bringing things together. And when we were curating the Tuesday talks, to me, this was the apposite moment, the ultimate moment to be thinking about the idea of bringing things together. In 2015, I had the opportunity to take Ben Quilty really on his first trip to the desert. So not long ago, and I took him to Murujulu, which is a community just on the edge of Uluru, and also to Alice Springs. In Murujulu, we were working with Anangu artists, and it was his connection that he made during that bush camp that I think has changed his life and his practice, and theirs too. Now, it's an interesting week to be talking about this because just last Friday night, Adelaide opened its own APY gallery. Hands up if you've either been there or know about it. A Little bit more analysis, brilliant. It is located on Light Square. The APY Collective are a collective that represent all of the art centres across the Anangu Pitinjata, Yankanjata lands. And not only is it a place where you can acquire work directly from the art centres and from the artists, but you can, there'll also be artists working in that space. There's been 
a long and important push for a space in Adelaide where community can be and where people who are perhaps visiting, for instance, all too regularly, the Adelaide Hospital, can also bring their friends and family. So I just wanted to, I haven't had a chance to get there yet because I didn't get back from Europe until Saturday night, but I can't wait to go. And I'd really encourage you to do so if you've had a chance to do so. Now, that has been brought about by the championing or through the championing of Anangu artists. And Ben Quilty has been pretty much at the forefront of that championing, I must argue, since uh, the visit that we made, and that was the head of the project called Sappers and Shrapnel. He has been visiting the APY lands very regularly. In fact, he was up there last month with Richard Flanagan. It was Richard Flanagan's first trip to Central Australia. Now, isn't, I just think this is so fascinating that, that and, and he was apparently, he says, my life has changed forever. My way of seeing myself and my country has been irrevocably altered. I think sometimes in Adelaide, because I do believe we have connections to the desert that are not shared in the eastern seaboard, that we, we don't, we take for granted that connection and we don't realise that it's not one that has permeated the rest of the country. About 18 months ago, a project came out of some of the fabulous work that Anangu artists have been doing and the project is called Weapons for the Soldier. The project is the first Anangu curated exhibition where non-Aboriginal artists have been invited to contribute. The chief curator happens to be Vincent Namajira, the great-grandson of Albert, whose portrait we see at the other end of the space, and whose work you will see in the Ramsey Art Prize. Vincent Namajira's chief curator invited Anangu artists, because of course Vincent Namajira is Western Arundel, but he lives in the APY lands with his family, and he invited non-Aboriginal artists, and among them was Ben Quilty, and Ben Quilty made the work behind me for that exhibition. I think that's an important point to make. It's not a credit on a label, it's a really important point. This work was made by invitation. In fact, it was Ben's experience of this site that was rendered or brought about by invitation. During one of Ben Quilty's visits to the APY lands, he was invited to visit a site that has a heavy history and a site that is not known necessarily for its heavy history. The site was northwest of Armitage on the Musgrave Ranges to the western end of the APY lands. And he drove for some time with Frank Young, an important elder from the APY community. And he arrived at a site which bears the name of this painting, Erin Erinji. Now the site has, in some ways, a history that is quite consistent with many important water sources and water sites across the APY lands. And I'm going to call on the research now of Dr. Diana Young, who is largely an anthropologist, although she started as an architect. Diana Young is the former director of the University of Queensland Museum, Archaeology and Art Museum. And she has done probably more work than anyone in the country around the history of doggers in the APY lands. Um, the other word for dogger is dingo scalper. 
And I'm kind of, this is new research, which is why I'm kind of leaning upon her research and new ways of thinking. The dingo, in essence, is such an interesting beast because, of course, we describe the dingo as a native dog. But the dingo arrived probably via Southeast Asia relatively recently in Aboriginal terms. I think the oldest... I'll actually check my notes just so I don't mislead you in any way. Can you hold my phone? Thank you. <laughs> the dingo, the oldest uh, dig, which has brought us into historic contact with the dingo is about 4,000 years and that specifically 3,500 but Diana Young's research points to DNA studies that suggest they may have been here between 4,600 and 18,000 years. So the dingo has this really interesting insider-outsider kind of position. From very early on, Aboriginal people, and specifically Aboriginal women, have used the dingo as a way of helping them hunt, as a way of helping them to hunt and, in essence, to gather as well. Now, what happened in South Australia from about 1912 onwards is that the South Australian government established a Wild Dogs Act. Later, there were similar schemes introduced in the 1920s in the Northern Territory and in WA. The Wild Dogs Act meant that dingoes could be hunted and killed and their scalps collected for a significant bounty. Now, that was a bounty that first, from my understanding of Diana's research, first involved Anangu people quite intrinsically, that Anangu were involved in assisting and, some, in some instances, hunting and collecting those scalps. The word scalper wasn't used so much then, it was more uh, the idea of the dogger. The idea of the financial remuneration for the skin became a contested point. And from the 19, late 30s and 40s, we see a wave of white doggers come through, uh, particularly the APY lands. In fact, Ernabella, you know that Ernabella Mission was established, well, certainly Arts and Craft at least, was established in 1948. But the first activity that happened in Ernabella from the late 30s actually had to do with dingo scalping. Why? Because Ernabella was the seat or the heart of the sheep industry in that part of South Australia. And it is lambs in particular that are susceptible to dingo attack. So from the teens, the 20s, the 30s and the 40s, we have this history of dingo scalping, of, of removing the wild dog, removing the native wild dog and collecting and, and the patterns of engagement between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. In fact, it's R.M. Williams that you all would know through his boots in particular, who was at the forefront of that wave. So this painting recounts a history and a story that's probably from, I'm guessing from the 1930s or 40s. So Frank Young in sharing the story, and I'll, I will tell you the story, uh, 
managed to invite or invited Ben Quilty to the site. And what he said to him at that site was that this was a place where there was a white man who was a dogger and he had defiled the watercourses. And I, when I first heard this story, I was thinking of it as a singular narrative. I was thinking about Frank's story, and then I started to do more research, and I'll read something in a minute which will hopefully be illuminating. Um, and he said, this man was washing himself, he was washing his animals, he was polluting our most important water source. Now, I don't need to tell you how important water is, because you live in Adelaide, but... He, the sense to which this defilement had offended, deeply offended, but not more than offence, deeply threatened the livelihood of Anangul was palpable decades later to Ben Quilty. That white man was speared in that waterhole and the death of that, of that white man led to generations of retribution and of fighting. I'm talking about this ahead of Reconciliation Week because I actually think that the kind of truth-telling or, or the telling of truths, and there may not be just one, is a really important part of where we're at right now. It's a really important part of the role that artists play. Very few of you would need an introduction to Charles Percy Mountford. Mountford's a very important South Australian figure. The works that he collected are in our collection from 48 and other dates. And of course, in the museum's collection, he was a long-standing staff member of the South Australian Museum. Mountford's diaries tell of the defilement that was led by white doggers across the lands. And I'm just going to read you an ex ex excerpt. Every main water I go, there are deep camel pads made by the doggers. This is Mountford writing in 1940. The doggers, this is, this is now uh, Diana Young, the doggers were flouting the law, not just by entering the land, but by knowing the difficulty of policing the reserve by cohabiting with Aboriginal women. Mountford ruminated on this in his field, German, um, field journal. And this is what Mountford says in 1940. I personally have told the protector of Aborigines in Adelaide that doggers were going everywhere. And he said he didn't want to know. The Anthropological Society wrote protesting and the protector replied that he had not been asked for permission to enter the reserve for the last five years. So people like Mountford and others were aware that there was a kind of colonising, if you like, and a defilement of the landscape of the land happening at that very time. This painting points to that moment. And whilst I read it initially in terms of its singularity, it now seems obvious that this is one story among many. So what have we got? Well, we've got a painting that is still wet. And those of you sitting in the front rows, I'm sure, can still smell it. I can certainly smell it standing here. We've got a painting that's been made by an act of reconciliation an act of reconciling one surface with another. So for instance, the six panels have been pressed into the pristine white six panels. This is an act that requires great bravery if you've ever worked with large quantities of paint and large surfaces. 
At the time that Ben made this work, he'd also just suffered a quite extreme sporting injury and hence he needed an assistant, but he often needs an assistant to help him create these raw shark works. Because the act of prizing, such, such is the kind of unctuous nature of oil paint, that the act of prizing one surface from another creates this incredible kind of surface tension. An act of creation comes from an act of destruction, ultimately. He destroys his own surface to create another surface. And apologies for those of you who have heard me talk about this before, but of course he is remaking a psychological or psychoanalytic device which was first used officially by Herman Rorschach uh, during war as a way of diagnosing or understanding at least the effects of war trauma. So a hundred years ago, almost, Rorschach coins this idea, calls it the Rorschach technique, and uses the idea of the ink blot as a way of fathoming the depths, if you like, or the nature of one's psychosis. Quilty repositions it 80, 90 years later as a way of us thinking about our own history and our own position, our own perspective. Because what will happen for each of you will be quite different. Each of you will see something quite different in this particular rendering of the landscape. So perhaps the most, I mean, perhaps with the exception of this central grotto, this dark grotto in the centre, it's the white unpainted sections of the canvas which are the most arresting. I would actually argue that that's the case in all of Ben Quilty's painting and I think his greatest strength is where he doesn't lay paint. I think one of the best things about his practice is the way that the negative space speaks in the work, the way that it, you see it in the Margaret Ollie portrait better than any other example. It's the unpainted face that comes to life in that work. So here we have these two forms. They are ghost gums, they are the eucalypts that we find in the central Australian landscape. But I'm sure you can see what I see. They also read like upturned figures, don't they? Or really an upturned figure. Maybe the figure of the defiler. And I think, and I can't help but think this, because I'm sharing a room with Albert Namatjira. I can't help but think about the anthropomorphic tendencies of Namatjira. Namatjira was in a sense misread for decades as being someone who had merely kind of recited a European tradition of landscape painting. In effect, Namatjira was remaking that tradition to his own end because every mark that he made was one that was deeply inscribed by his own understanding of that landscape. Just as everybody's art, every artist's perspective is charged by their own experience. It's in the ghost gum that we see the greatest acts of anthropomorphism in the work of Albert Namatjira. Those sentinel forms that you see traditionally on the left or the right of his paintings, they kind of stand in waiting. You all know what I'm talking about, I'm sure. It's probably arguably one of the most archetypal images in our art history. I see those here in this work. I see them here, but I see them upturned. And I see, mostly because of their diagonal form, a sense of energy and kind of crisis in those forms. This work uh, was initially shown late last year and then early this year at the exhibition, 
weapons for the soldier and then it made its way directly here to the gallery and we are hoping to acquire this work because it belongs in no other place than the Art Gallery of South Australia, in my perspective. It's a work that has quite an incredible conversation with our APY collection, obviously, and it's a work that was made at the behest of a community. And this is not, this is a story of Anangu resilience and resistance. It's not a traditional massacre painting, if you can see my point. This is a story about the death of a white man. I'm now going to stay right where you are, but whilst I'm speaking, feel free to turn if you'd like to. I'd like to just talk about the two other key history paintings in this room. Ben says he doesn't make landscapes. That's a little bit hard to fathom when you're standing in front of one. But I think what he's trying to say is that he's attempting to remake a landscape tradition. And in doing so, I actually think he's become a history painter. History painter were, painting was de rigueur in the 19th century. History painting was the way that we understood empire, was the way that we understood ourselves. Ben has kind of recrafted a new way of making history paintings, if you like, and he calls into question our history by doing that. But these landscapes are never just about his experience in that place. Much of the non-Aboriginal tradition of landscape making in this country has been a kind of, if you like, the artist kind of owning the site through their representation. These are all, always spectral. They are always haunted and they are always otherly. He does that very deliberately and very, I think, viscerally in the work here on the Southern Wall, which is called Bedford Downs Rorschach. Many of you will have heard me talk about this work in anamorphic terms. So I've used the word anthropomorphic today, which of course means to kind of morph from the human form, anthropos meaning man. The anamorphic is the idea of the kind of distorted image that reconciles, nice to use that word again, that reconciles into being or into view. The most famous example in history is of course Holbein's The Ambassadors from 1533 that hangs in the National Gallery in London. And it's only when you stand off to the right-hand side of the work from a particular angle that you see the skull. And this work has been fascinating. To, this has probably been the litmus test in the exhibition because this is the work that people can either see or not see. This is a work that coheres or not. And I think that in itself is an interesting proposition. On the right-hand side, Ben has painted a very large skull and then pressed that skull into the left-hand side. It's an early raw shark for Ben. This work refers very specifically to arguably one of the better, <coughs> pardon me, the better known massacres. And Ben's reckoning of this is relatively recent. It took him to study a course at Monash University on Aboriginal culture for him to go home and pop his own name, Quilty, uh, and the word massacre into a search engine. I tried it myself just to be on the safe side, by the way. I think it's a really interesting proposition. And this, this massacre came up, and this massacre is the Bedford Downs massacre. And at pretty much the same time, in the early 20th century, and these histories are much better known for lots of reasons, there was a gentleman called Paddy Quilty. 
not a direct relative of Ben's, but no doubt they share an Irish ancestry somewhere along the line, who had taken the leasehold of a very large piece of Gija country, G-I-J-A. And some Gija men had stolen some cattle and the retribution was the poisoning with strychnine of a number of community members. The bed, it's known now as the Bedford Downs Massacre, and that's certainly the subject here. Paddy Bedford, whose name many of you would know, Paddy Bedford was born just after that massacre and was given the name of the site, Bedford, and also the name of the grazier or pastoralist, Paddy Quilty. For Ben Quilty, this was a moment of understanding that he is complicit in our history, we all are, and that he plays a role in reconciling himself through paint with that history. Some years later, when he'd moved to Gundungara country, he lived on, he was actually in Bidigal country, he's very close to uh, where the first fleet arrived, very close to Botany Bay at the time that he painted that. He moved to Gundungara country over the Blue Mountains and he visited this site here, which is just near Bundanoon, not Bundanon, which is where the, the Boyd estate is, but Bundanoon, which is closer to Mittagong and Exeter and Bowral, what we call the Southern Highlands. And he was introduced via some Gundungara elders to this particular, particularly picturesque. If you've been to the Southern Highlands, they are just gloriously, you know, you feel as though you've stepped into a Vongarad Sassafras Gully painting. I mean, they're just incredibly beautiful, ferny glens. And this is a, a very, very popular picnic spot. But it was in the early part of the 19th century that two white men killed as many Aboriginal people as they possibly could who were living on this site. This work, which is called Fairy Bower Rorschach, performs once again this invitation to us to see ourselves, to see the landscape, to think about place, to think about country, to think about all of those things. And I think there is something, and perhaps it's just me, but I think there's something quite anthropomorphic happening in the centre of this painting as well. You start to see a figure or a face or something emerge. So these acts of reconciliation are really part of Quilty's attempts to register and make sense of where he is as a painter historically, how he sees himself as part of a lineage within or outside of part of a lineage of landscape making. I was quite adamant that I needed these big pictures in the show, whilst Quilty is certainly known so well for the Afghanistan pictures in the next room and arguably some of the earlier Budgies and Tiranas. It's this work, which to me is probably the work that he'll be best remembered by. That's a curator's call, I know, and I could well be wrong. But I think this work, in terms of what it's attempting to do at this point in time, is so compelling. How are you all going? Are you okay? Good. So thinking about reconciliation, to bring things together again, because his, his aim is not 
and I, I hope I haven't bludgeoned you into a guilt trip, because that is certainly not his aim at all. And that's why he seduces us with paint. That's why these works are so beautiful. That's why he talks to the sense of place and the sense of beauty. There is this doubling, there's just this duplicity, there is this tension in these landscapes. If you don't know these histories, you may not know these histories. And he plays with that. He doesn't give the game away in a sense that these works are overly didactic. And for some people, they'll be read on a particular level. To me, one of the clues is that there's always a doubling that goes on. The raw sharks are double. The Namatjira budgie is a double. There's always this sense of another side. And it is Richard Flanagan, who I've quoted on the introductory wall text, who made the genius assertion that Quilty is, in fact, his own Rorschach, that he is a double, that he is a contradiction, that he is an insider and an outsider. He's an everyman, and yet he is like no one you've ever met. He is all of those things at once. That idea of reconciling the two halves seems an important thing for us all ahead of Reconciliation Week and ahead of where we are right now in this country, how we make sense of things, how we reconcile those different parts of ourself nationally, culturally, socially, in, in every sense. So thank you very much for listening to me. I don't know if I've talked for way too long or not enough, such is the state that you get in when you stand up here. Um, and I, you know, he's just sent me a text. That's nice, isn't it? Um, I would love to take any questions that you may have. Yes, sir. I'm going to give you my mic hold my microphone for you. But, yep, good. Um, so the analysis here was this gentleman, before I talked about these as figures, was reading them as kind of two rivers. Rivers, I guess, are figures. You know, this is the thing about rethinking the landscape. And if we do it through Namatjira's eyes, then we start to think about the landscape as anthropomorphic. We start to think about it as dynamic and animated and alive and ancestrally loaded, you know, carrying such power. And I get, I get that sense here. He's been very brave. You know, he hasn't scratched anything off this surface, unlike Fairy Bower. In Fairy Bower, he's taken away some paint. You see it on the bottom left-hand two-in side of the, the work there. He's removed some paint and then he's overprinted. The same thing has happened with Evening Shadows. So in the Evening Shadows work, he's overprinted. So he's charged the work. It's basically a reprographic technique, which is also another really interesting dimension. He's almost like creating a, a, a print by another means. The Surrealists had a term for it. And um, with my colleague, Lee Robb, I had the great honour, I think it was a week ago, Lee, of standing in the Peggy Guggenheim collection and thinking a lot about decalcomania, which is the term that surrealists use, and frottage. And they're two, <coughs> two things, pardon me, that Ben Quilty uses. Decalcomania was the technique that many of the kind of biomorphic abstract painters from surrealism would use, where they'd take paint and they'd print it onto a surface. Max Ernst is the most famous protagonist. They'd print it onto a surface and then they would see what emerged from the surface. Now, the surrealists were making decalcomania paintings at the same time as Herman Rorschach was using the inkblot technique. Because, of course, the surrealists were attempting to divine this state of one's rationality or otherwise. 
So this reprographic technique of printing invites all sorts of chance associations. For you, it was the idea of the watercourse or the fork in the river. And for some of you, it will be the figure. So 100 years on, those painterly techniques are alive and kicking at a time where painting is a contested genre, just like landscape. It's hard to see. There wasn't much painting at the Venice Biennale, for instance, was there? It's a really contested genre, so it's exciting to be standing with a full audience in an exhibition that celebrates paint and hopefully its power. Any other questions or comments? Michael. Uh, there appear to be a very strong standing figure in the centre there with this uh, yeah. legs astride and arms akimbo. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah, there's a, there's a kind of power ranger in the centre, isn't there? Um, Michael's expression was, you know, legs akimbo and standing astride. Yeah, I'm sure you can all see that. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So they're made quickly, as you can tell, but Tina's point is not about that. Tina's question is about how long it kind of takes them to be planned and come into being. So he does sketch, he just sketches with a felt tip pen predominantly in a diary. So he'll do a sketch, but most of the things that happen are chance. One of our guides made a point about the kind of, and Kelly, I don't know if you're in the room, maybe you are. Oh, you are. You know the map of Australia that we spoke about with a self-portrait? And, and I, I brought Ben's attention to that and he had never seen it. So that's a good example of us doing the work in the painting, of us doing that particular work. And some of the things are accidental. He speaks about the Naranjeti woman in Evening Shadows as a, an accident that then started to have some power and some meaning. So, so much of it is, is chance, as it should be. Yeah, MJ. Is, is the mirror effect in that mm -hmm. less mirroring? Yeah, it is, because he's removed some paint. It's not your imagination. It's your eyes doing very good work. Because what... <laughs> What's happened there is that a couple of things have happened. On the left-hand side, the paint hasn't cohered, so you've got large areas of white. And the second panel in, the one I referred to before, he's literally scraped the paint off. So you're right. Yes? I'd love you to. I'm going to give you a microphone. Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> I was just going to say, back on your point about uh, Ben Quilty uh, painting by chance, I might want to argue that you can only do that if you're an accomplished artist. Um, if I tried to do that, I could do it, but there's no way you would really seeing things in what I'm doing. I mean, you could make it up, but yeah, I mean, I've dabbled, but I couldn't, I couldn't do something like this by chance. If, if and that's a good point. And I'm talking not about. I'm talking about what happens for us, really, and sometimes what happens for him, but you're, you're absolutely correct. You have to know paint and know what it does in order to make it work this way. So you're right. It takes a lot of um, 
understanding, deep visceral understanding of the way paint will behave to make it work this way, particularly around colour. And I know you've got a sense of this because you're looking at coloured walls in here, but I really wanted to play on that idea and draw out that idea of Ben's capacity as a colourist because colour is much more difficult than we give it credit for. Getting colour right is a, is a difficult thing. This, this coming back to colour, you know, when I was growing up, my idea of what the Australian desert might be like chromatically was probably informed by American westerns. Yeah? Don't you think? But if, but now I've had the, you know, the honour of going to the APY lands. These are the colours, the APY lands, particularly at a time where the Ultukumpa and the, you know, the Grevillea is blossoming and all of the, the plants are blossoming. So... The colour is uh, the colour's brave in this work, but I don't think it's entirely divorced from the landscape itself. Yes, yeah, sure. Final. It's going into de dangerous territory, but would you think, as I do, that possibly that Ben Quilty is the most formidable painter working in Australia today, certainly of his generation? Funny, we were just writing some notes upstairs about the Ramsey Art Prize, and I described Julie Fragar as the, one of the best painters in the country. And then I said to I said to one of the team, "Don't tell Ben Quilty that." So I think it depends on what type of painter, but I don't think there are many of them. I think I could name them on one hand. I don't think there are many of them, and I think what he does with paint is so purposeful, and speaks so broadly that therein kind of lies its power. But do go and check out Julie Frager, good plug. We've just done a new display upstairs in Gallery 7 of the winner from the uh, Ramsey Art Prize two years ago, Sarah Contos, but Julie Frager's work that won the People's Choice, so clearly the people think she's a good painter too, is up there on the wall too. She's a brilliant painter. Thank you so much for joining us. Cheers. Thanks so much, Lisa. Brilliant speaker. Aren't we lucky to have her? Uh, and this is um, the third exhibition or the fourth that you've curated of Ben's work? Uh, solo. Oh, solo. So oh, third solo. Third solo. Uh, but, you know, this is the result of... <laughs> but it's the result of a very close relationship and also, uh, and also you know, Lisa's role and, and connecting... Um, also, Ben, uh, with this whole topic and area is, is really fascinating. So, a uh, really important talk today, thinking about this exhibition, which is in its final weeks. What is really interesting about this exhibition is that the whole exhibition is off to Queensland, um, opening very soon at, the, uh, at Quagoma, and then at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Now, that is very unusual in the country at the moment, to have a show that is taken up by multiple galleries across the country, and that's because of the enormous and close relationship that the artist has with both of those, those galleries as well. And what is really fascinating is that um, in Brisbane, it will also be accompanied by an entire Margaret Ollie exhibition. So very exciting. Not that you need to go to Brisbane. I know, I know, not that, I know. <laughs> so two things to talk about. 
One is uh, we are the first state art museum to produce our reconciliation action plan, which we uh, launched about five weeks ago. We're really proud of it. It's got the amazing Colata Juta project um, on the cover, which is now in our collection. Um, and uh, so anyone is available to have copies. Um, we've got a couple of copies over here. Leah has got some copies as well. Um, Alia is newly on staff in our public programs and fantastic to um, expand and keep um, and keep expanding the number of terrific young Aboriginal people that are on our staff. So um, really important for that. So, um, so reconciliation action plan uh, and foreshadowing that for next week. Uh, what Lisa did refer to as well is the fact that we uh, are very interested more than that. We believe this work should be in our collection. We do have, and I have to qualify this, we do have very strong holdings of Ben Quilty. Most of that is through gift from the artist himself. We actually have bought very little directly from the artist. We really believe this is a terrifically important work to be in our collection. Barry Bow is in the Art Gallery of New South Wales collection. Uh, and so we've launched a campaign with, uh, with the foundation and contemporary collectors to acquire this work. We've already received some donations. Anyone is available to, to support uh, this acquisition and uh, to, to be in its rightful home here in Adelaide and South Australia. So just encouraging that. Uh, and uh, Ramsey Art Prize. Wow. It's wild up there. You can't see it today, but you will. Uh, Friday night um, is, is the opening, and uh, there are some still uh, tickets still available. Uh, but it's uh, terrifically important, as Lisa said. There's three prizes for $100,000 in the country. This is the only one under 40, and it's completely democratic. That is also, like the Archibald, anybody can enter, and I love that about this prize. Um, and wow, you'll see some great work upstairs. So it'll be open to the public on, on Saturday, so please come, and I'll be speaking about that next week. Thank you so much, Lisa Slade. Thank you. <laughs>